Hebrews chapter 9. And our text is found tonight in the verses 1 through to 10 of this chapter. And our subject is what is named in the first phrase of the portion, the first covenant. We're considering the first covenant tonight. Not the first covenant in all its aspects, but the first covenant in that aspect with which the apostle deals with it here, a certain part of the first covenant, namely its visible public worship aspect. Because that's what the apostle is doing now. He's dealing with the public worship in the tabernacle under the first covenant. And let me remind you of the last chapter. There he dealt with the better covenant, the new covenant. He has told us that the Lord Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, which now has been brought in by Christ's death, his resurrection, his ascension, and especially his enthronement at the right hand of God as a king priest. And all of this is in accordance with Jeremiah the prophet. Behold, the day has come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So Paul has proved from Jeremiah 31 that the new covenant has been brought in. And notice the last verse in chapter 8. In that he saith, a new covenant he hath made the first, that's the first covenant, old. That's why we call it the old covenant now, because the new has been brought in and the old is made old. And what happens the old, that which decayeth and waxeth old, is ready to vanish away, to disappear, except as you read of it in the Old Testament Scriptures. So it's to vanish away. And a new implies that. And a better implies the ending or the replacing of the old. So the old is obsolete and is ready to vanish away. And now, of course, for us, 2,000 years later, it has vanished away. You can go to Jerusalem now, but you'll not see any temple, any Levitical worship. There's absolutely nothing. There hasn't been anything for nearly 2,000 years. Since AD 70, the Levitical worship ceased. It's vanished away. Even as the Apostle said here. It's vanished away and we don't expect its resurrection. Not at all. And especially since no Jew can prove what tribe he comes from. And none of them can prove that they are the descendants of Levi. Or of the house of Aaron. And therefore it's impossible that it should reappear again. It has vanished away. But as Paul writes this epistle, it seems that the temple is still standing and it's still being carried out, this visible worship in the temple at Jerusalem. And no doubt there are Jewish Christians who are struggling with this matter, with Levitical worship and how far they ought to be involved in it, uh, how far they ought to be participating in it and trusting in it. And maybe there are people saying, and they seem to be saying this, how can we be sure it's ended and over? And this is what Paul is trying to keep getting across to them. We have the reality, we have the fulfillment, we have grace. The old is gone. But these Jews who, who were brought up in this, 
who, who still see it to some extent, they seem to be struggling, having problems. And so he brings in Jeremiah chapter 31 to prove that the new has come in, in Jesus Christ. And so you may be surprised then that Paul's going back to the old again. Jeremiah 31 ought to be enough. And indeed it, it is enough. But for a Jews who are embedded in the old still and can still see the visible in the temple, it, it's difficult. And so what Paul does now, he looks at the visible again. He looks at the old again. And he shows that even in the visible, even in the old, there is something about it that shows that it's temporary. That it's going to pass. That it could not be the better. It could not be the the fulfillment. It could not be the complete. He's showing the temporary nature of Levitical worship. So he's bringing us back to the old to show us it. There is something about it that preaches and proclaims as you look at it all. This is not forever. It couldn't possibly be. There's something better. There's something brighter. There's something bigger. There's something more permanent than this. Just look at it. By looking at it, you see that it is temporary. So that's what the apostle is is endeavoring to do now. It was a caravan before the building was completed, if you like. You know what it is? Whenever you see a caravan on a big plot of ground, you know that that caravan's not permanent. There's something bigger going to go up there. That's just a temporary dwelling. That's, they're not going to live in there forever. That's not going to go on forever. There's something better. There's something bigger. There's something permanent. And that's what Paul is doing. He's, he's taking us to look at the caravan. And by looking at the caravan, you see, there's got to be something more than that. So it's a caravan before the better. And the best will replace it. And of course, until then, the people of God had to make do with it, don't they? They have to live in the caravan. They have to participate in the caravan activities until the better comes. And that's the way it was for the Old Testament church. They were dealing in in the caravan, in the temporary, before Christ, the reality comes. And the Jews knew it was temporary. They knew it was a pattern of things to come. They knew that there was something more. Those that were taught of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, as the years passed, they got bogged down in the tradition, and they thought that was it. There's nothing more. But those who were taught of the Holy Spirit, they always knew that the seed of the woman would come, And he's going to bring in the permanent, the glorious, the reality. And replace the caravan. So let's follow Paul and see what he's doing here. Let's look at the visible, the old covenant worship. And let's see that it is clearly temporary. And it's only in place until the new comes. Paul tells us two things about the first covenant. He says, first of all, it had service. Verse 1. Verily the first covenant had service. Ordinances of divine service. It had regulations for the service, for the worship. But it also had a a place. And he calls the place a worldly sanctuary. There was a tabernacle made. So there are three things here which what the apostle does. First of all, he tells us about the sanctuary, the place. He tells us about the service that went on in the place. And then he 
tells us about the signification of all of this, what all of this means. And those are our three heads tonight. First of all, the sanctuary. There was a worldly sanctuary. The first covenant had a worldly sanctuary. And there was all of this went on in the sanctuary. Now notice what he calls the sanctuary. He gives it two names. The first is worldly. The old covenant, it only had a worldly sanctuary. It only had a sanctuary on this earth. A sanctuary on this planet. That's all it had. And by that, he doesn't mean a bad sense it was worldly. We sometimes say Christians are worldly, and we mean a bad sense. They do things that the worldling does. Or they go places that the worldling goes to. And it's a worldly Christian. But that's not the way Paul uses the word here. The worldly sanctuary isn't a bad place. It's a good place. It's a good thing. It's God's covenant and his tabernacle under that covenant. But by worldly, Paul is emphasizing it belongs to this fallen world. It's not heavenly. It's temporary. Like everything in the world is. Everything in the world is temporary. Yes, God gave it by inspiration in the word of God, in the book of Exodus. God instituted this worldly tabernacle, but it was material. You could feel it. And you know, with the wind blowing and the rain descending, the fabric decayed. You had to repair it, you had to fix it, you had to change some of the the curtain material now and again because it's a worldly sanctuary. This isn't going to go on forever. It's worldly. It's material. This is not what salvation is all about. This is not what the glory of God is all about. A worldly sanctuary just here below. So by its very nature, it's not, not heavenly, not something eternal, but something perishing, something passing, something waxing old, something decaying, something that will vanish away. Just look at it, and you know it's going to vanish away. So even apart from Jeremiah 31, just by looking at the tabernacle, we know that this worldly building will pass away. It's not everlasting. It's not the best. It's not the better. And then he calls it, what the Bible calls it, a tabernacle. And what's a tabernacle? It's a tent, isn't it? It's a caravan. A tent is temporary. A tent is not everlasting. A tent is not glorious. A tent, by its very nature, that's temporary. There must be something better to come. There must be something going to be built in its place. So just look at this tent as the years pass. It's got its repairs. It has its fading fabric and all the rest. It's aging. Could this be the best? Could this be the fulfillment? Could this be the final? Of course not. Just look at it. And as well as that, Paul says, it was made. There was a tabernacle made. That is, it was made by human hands. They had to get the tent makers in. They had to get those who had the ability. They had the needle and thread and do the woodwork and the metal work and get it up. It was made. It was made by human hands. Is that the glory? Is that the better? Is that the best? Is that what God has for us? It's all preaching temporary. Passing. 
And then the next thing that the apostle does is to describe the furniture of the tabernacle and its divisions into two parts. The tent has a partition, you see, it says there in verse 2 and following. And there's a second veil. So it's divided into two. And the first part is called the sanctuary. And the second part is called the holiest of all, the tabernacle proper. And there's a big veil between the two parts. It's, It's put into compartments. And there's furniture in one part. And there's furniture in the other part. And Paul said, just look at the furniture. Is that eternal? Is that the reality? Is that all that God has for us? Is this it? Just look at it. It couldn't be the be-all and the end-all, the final. It has temporary furniture. And the apostle names, I think it's the nine things in the compartments. The candlestick, the table, the showbread, verse 2. Then in verse 4, the golden censer, the altar of incense, the ark of the covenant, the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's bod that budded, and then the tables of the covenant in the ark, and the cherubim of glory covering the, the mercy seat, the covering over the, the ark. This isn't eternal. This isn't the reality. It's caravan furniture. And there must be better to come. None of it is eternal. Just look at the cherubim over the mercy seat. Those cherubim, they're not real. They're just made of metal. They depict real things. The true cherubim, the heavenly cherubim, the angels of glory, looking into the mysteries of grace. So you see what Paul is trying to do here? Okay, you do. You want to go back to this? You want to go back to the furniture? Just have a look at it. We have the reality. We can go into the heavenlies. We can be in the presence of the Lord. He's showing them how it depicts its temporariness everywhere that you look at it. They're not the end in themselves. The furniture just says, batter's coming. Batter's on its way. The lampstand, it goes out. They have to keep pouring oil into it. They might be negligent of their duty sometimes. It might go out. Who can tell? It's all subject to human labors. It's all depending on man. The bread goes moldy and has to be changed. Is this a reality? Is this the bread we feed on for everlasting life? It can't be. It's passing. It's it's fading. Even the bread rots. Yes, there was a wee bit of manna, miraculously preserved inside the, the most holy place. But it's depicting something better. It's not the end of the cell. And then there's this curtain. This thick curtain that divides it into two. How could that be the end? How could that be the reality, the finality? I mean, God says, I'll dwell among you. I'll be with you. You'll be my people. I'll be your God. And there's this big thick curtain stuck up between the two. How can that be the better? How can that be the new covenant? How can that be the final of all that God has for us when there's a thick curtain between? Just look at it. You believers out of Judaism... I want to go back to that? So here's a curtain that separates God from his people. And as well as that, in the sanctuary out there, it's not all the people. Only the priests could go in. Not even one tribe, but only part of one tribe that could go in there. Is this the final? 
Surely it's not. This isn't the new. This isn't the better. This isn't what Christ brings to us. The tabernacle and all of that's going on there in its finality. No, it's showing things to come. So all of it is preaching. This is not the better. It couldn't possibly be. And the Jews outside, they knew this, of course. They knew because they were taught of the Holy Spirit. This is temporary. We're waiting for the seed of the woman to come. We don't know how he'll do it. We don't know how he'll bring in the glorious. But we believe he will. And he has. So they knew that the caravan was until Christ came. The temple builder. Christ. Not Solomon. Not the temple at Jerusalem. That's not the completion and the finality. That's just the tabernacle just blew up and large. The next thing is the service. It had services, ordinances of divine service. And now he deals with them in verses 6 and 7. Now were these things thus ordained. The priest went always into the first, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood. So were these ordinances of divine service. And you get that expression in verse 1. The regulations. The book of Leviticus, all the guidelines, how the sacrifices were to be offered, and what was to be done with them, and what happened to blood, and what happened to carcass, and what was burnt holy, and what wasn't burnt holy, and what the priests could eat, and what they couldn't eat. All those regulations of divine art, just look at them. Is that the end? Is that the end all and be all? These meats, and these drinks, and these carnal washings that, that the apostle refers to here in this section? Is that it? Is that what it's all about? And so the ordinances show themselves that they're, they're temporary. In the, in the first place. And, and in the second place, uh, that only got a solitary visit. God in the most holy place, he only got a solitary visit. Just once. And it had to be repeated every year. Is that it? Is that what it's all about? Just look at it. It's telling us it's temporary. And he couldn't go in without the blood of a beast. And this shows that it's not the best. That it's not the completion. It's not the reality. Every year. Every year it has to be repeated because it's, it's imperfect. It has to be repeated. It's not final. It goes on and on, perpetually on in the caravan. Because the final hasn't come. The full hasn't come. But now it has in Jesus Christ. So every right-thinking Jew knew this wasn't the end all. Just watched the same ritual year after year. And you know, that, that going into the holy place was really frightening for them. It said that they tied a rope around the high priest when he went in there. Because you could die. This is what's under the old. You could go in there and you could die. You could go in there and God could consume you all up. If you do something wrong, if, if something's out of place, if something's not right, if the priest doesn't wear the right clothes, if he doesn't go in the right way, you could die. And if you died, nobody could go in to get him. And so you had to have a rook, and you had to, if that happened, you had to pull him out. Is that what God has for us? Is that what we have under the new? Do, and you Jews who believe in Christ, you want to go back to that? The old covenant is not the fullness. 
It's signifying the fullness. It's picturing it. And so the two tables of stone, what were they? They're lying in the Ark of the Covenant on hard, hard rock, on hard stone. And all the people out there are all disobedient and backsliding all the time and not going on with God hardly ever. But now it's written on our hearts. Now we have the Holy Spirit and we all know the Lord and know right from wrong. Because we're under the new. And those tables are not on stone anymore. They're here. They're here in our hearts by the finger of the Holy Spirit. So this can't be the completion. I will dwell among you. I'll be with you. I'll walk among you. You'll be, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. God's in a tent and the big curtain is up between the two. Just look at it. Christ Jesus has made us nigh unto God in the new. So it's clearly all temporary. It's signifying better things to come. And that's where we come now to Paul's comments on this in verse 8 through to 10. The signification. We looked at the sanctuary. We've looked at the service. Now let's look at the signification of all of this. What does all this mean? This caravan. What is it picturing? Paul says, the Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as yet the first tabernacle, the caravan, was still standing, which was a figure for the time then present. So what what is Paul saying here? He's talking about the tabernacle and the services. He says, in itself it all shows us of a temporary nature. Well, what's the point of it then? The point of it is, it signifies. It teaches. Christ isn't going to come for hundreds of years. I'm not going to send him until the fullness of time. But in the meantime, I'm signifying him. And that's what the word here Paul uses, signification. What is this? And and who is doing this signifying? Is it Paul's imagination? The imaginative preacher? who gets the furniture of the temple out, the tabernacle out, and says, no, this, that, and means this, and means the other. Is that, is that the preacher's imagination? No. What does the text say? The Holy Ghost thus signifying. The Holy Ghost instituted the tabernacle. The Holy Ghost gave the pattern of all the detail, and all the detail signifies things. And the Holy Spirit is giving us the significance of the batter and the picture and the caravan. It's the Holy Spirit. It's not the, far, the far-fetched imagination of Paul, the preacher. It's the wisdom of the Holy Ghost. And he signifies its temporary nature. As long as the tabernacle stands, it proclaims. It portrays, it prophesies of the better. And that thick veil especially showed that the way into the holiest is not yet made manifest. That's what it signifies. That's the main thing it signifies. All the furniture signifies plenty of things. 
But the main thing that it signifies is that thick veil, the way is not manifest. It's not revealed. It's not known. It's closed. So the veil is never removed and the way is not known. It's not obvious how it will be made open. It's not obvious how it will be removed. Something new has to come. Something to do with sacrifice. Something to do with a high priest. We're just not knowing all the details as you look at it. But it's obvious that the Holy Spirit is saying the person who is going to remove this veil has not yet come. The way is not known. It's shut up. So the seed of the woman has to come and deal with that. And Moses knew this and the people of God would have been taught this. There's one to come who'll open the way, who'll bring us back to God. So it's a signifying thing. And then Paul uses another word there in verse 9, which was a figure. The caravan is not the end all, the be all. The first covenant is not the end. The things under it are figures. Not the reality, figures. What's a figure? Well, a figure is like a parable, a similitude, a picture, a comparison with the better, the better. A, a little picture of the new, a little flicker of the glorious and the eternal. It's only a figure of the better and the eternal. And that's what the tabernacle was, a figure. And what does Paul say? A figure for the time then present. For these children believers. Under the schoolmaster until Christ comes. And this was part of the schoolmaster lessons. The tabernacle and the figure. Where they offered gifts and sacrifices. Which they, they couldn't make perfect. Isn't that what Paul says there? That could not make him that did the conscience. That did the service perfect. How do we know they weren't making it perfect? Because he had to come back again and offer them again. And then he went away still feeling guilty. Still feeling stained. Because he knows very well the blood of an animal can't take away his sins. He knows that. Just look at it. Do you really think the blood of animals took away their sins? They went away realizing that the guilt had not been dealt with. It didn't make them perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Yes, it ceremonially kept them clean. They could go and engage in the worship if they kept the outward right. But, but then you, for the inward here, so there, there was something more needed. It's just figures. It's just parables and pictures and things signified here in these bits and pieces. And everything has to be repeated. And nobody can ever sit down Nobody can ever say it's finished and it's done and that's the end and it's glory now. So all of these Jews who were enlightened and illuminated knew this as they just watched the, the ritual. What does Paul call it there in verse, verse 9? Carnal ordinances. Just animals and beasts and all of this and that. All external, all surface. But under the new covenant, it's internal. I write my law in their hearts. They'll all know me. It's internal. 
And it's effectual. By the Holy Spirit. Who is poured out under the new covenant. He wasn't poured out under the old covenant. But under the new covenant. Because Christ has opened the way. And as Paul says here. It was imposed. Who imposed it? God imposed it. What does that mean? It was to lie upon them as a burden. These ordinances, these laws, these regulations, it was imposed on them. It was a schoolmaster that was leading them to Christ that they had to bear these heavy burdens, this, this legal ceremony, all of this imposed upon them until the time of what our translators have called the time of reformation. It's all going to end, you see. The supposition. When the better comes. So the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, clearly had, had a burdensome part. And that burden and weight in itself taught them, this is not the fullness of grace. This is not the peace of God that passeth all understanding, keeping our minds and hearts. There's no boldness in this. There's no freedom in this to go right into the presence of God. There's no liberty of the sons of God in this. No. It all comes in with the new. With the new. Just look at it. You think that's God's end? That caravan? Why do you want to go back to it? You have an open door into heaven. You have Christ who has come and who, who by his one sacrifice of himself has said it is finished and the whole veil is rent in two and he's gone into the presence of God and in his glorified humanity there he is. The way opened. And you can go right in. That's the new. That's the better. We have liberty now. So all of this is proclaiming the temporary nature of the old. Christ is the fulfillment. Christ is the reality. Christ brings in the, the spiritual temple. Not made with hands. So now anyone who realizes this and understands the nature of the old will never be able to go back to it again to participate. I mean, I cannot figure out in my head why there are Christians, evangelical Christians, who would give money to the rebuilding of a temple at Jerusalem. To me, that is an utter incredibility and utter folly. It's done. Why would we give money to that? Why would we help the Jews again build up this thing that God himself has cast down completely? No, we will not do slight to Christ by, by doing that. What did Paul say? Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free. You go to the throne of grace yourself. Would you go to a priest and bring your offering now when you can go right to God's throne? Through Christ? You see, the Old Testament is not contradictory to the New. They're not opposites. One is not bad and, and the other good. No, they're both good. The old is good, but the new is better. The old is temporary. The new is eternal and everlasting. The old is preparatory. The new is fulfillment. And people were saved under the old with its significations and with its figures. As the Holy Spirit illuminated them about that and through that, they were still saved under the old, but, but they didn't 
it, it wasn't as clear as day. They didn't have the light that we have. They didn't have the liberty that we have. They didn't have the assurance that we can have. So th- though they were saved, they had faith that was dim. They had assurance that was less. They had liberty that was less. But Christians today, of course, we, we have a great larger room of grace to go into than the Old Testament saints. And you know, they wanted to see what we see. That's what Peter says, that they searched the scriptures, they studied them, even the prophets who prophesied of the new that was to come, and they searched diligently that they might see what we see. But they could never see what we see, the way that we see it. Bless God, we're New Testament saints and we have the the old uh, to read about, but the new to be under and to experience. So we see much better now as Paul says, we see Jesus, you see. The way is manifest now to us. We see it clearly. But not even we see face to face yet. We see better than the Old Testament saints. We have greater liberty than the Old Testament saints. But we, we don't see the, the fullness. We don't see him face to face. What does Paul say in another place? We see through a glass darkly. Thank God it's not a veil. The veil's gone, but we still see through a glass darkly because we're still in the body, in the fallen humanity. And we see through a glass darkly. And there's a day when Old Testament believers and New Testament believers, and together they shall stand, and all together be brought into the new in its full and final consummation in the new heavens and in the new earth. We'll all be brought in together at the end for the consummation of the everlasting covenant. And God will dwell with us and we'll dwell with God and he'll walk among us and we'll be with him forever and ever and we'll follow him whithersoever he goes. We'll be dwelling in the very glory itself, face to face, as the book of the Revelation teaches us. And there'll be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the very midst of his people there. His servants will serve him. They'll see his face. His name will be in their foreheads. There'll be no night there. There'll be no need of a candle there. There'll be no sun there. The Lord God himself will be there in their midst, giving to them the glory of his own light. And they'll be there forever and ever. Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. That's the consummation of the, the new and the better. It's a glorious gospel we have. And brethren and sisters, use your liberties. Go into the presence of God through your great high priest. Believe in him. Love him. Make use of him by faith. And enjoy the presence of God. Let us pray.